Section 27 of Psychological Warfare. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Piano Roll 262. Psychological Warfare by Paul M. A. Leinbarger. Chapter 15b Strategic International Information Operations, Part 2. William Jackson Report After the Republicans came into office in 1953, President Dwight D. Eisenhower moved to overhaul the information establishment. He appointed a committee under the chairmanship of William Jackson, a former OSS official and investment banker, and under the secretaryship of Abbott Washburn, who had headed the superlatively successful advertising department of General Mills, Inc., which had successfully given away millions of prizes for millions of box tops from cereals consumed by American youth or flowers relished by the American housewife. Some of the liberal press commentators eyed the committee gloomily as it went to work. Nevertheless, that portion of its report which was made public turned out to be a document of remarkable finesse and sophistication. The report, released in July 1953, pointed out the Psychological Strategy Board had erred in trying to plan informational activities in its own light instead of considering the informational aspects of every single U.S. government activity possessing international significance. The report recommended the replacement of the Psychological Strategy Board by a more realistic policy-coordinating organization, which would coordinate not merely propaganda policies, but all policies, and, having coordinated all policies, would then resolve upon maximum psychological exploitation of the policies which had been decided. In a sense, this is rather like saying that the United States should have a president since the powerful chief executive of this government has, since 1789, been the final arbiter of executive matters, both foreign and domestic. In another sense, it can be interpreted to mean that the responsibilities of the presidency are so great that no one man could perform in his head all the staff work necessary to see through the opinion reactions which might develop abroad to U.S. executive decisions made here at home. If the latter supposition is true, it means that the United States is saddled with one more intricate governmental process made necessary by the closeness, dangerousness, and importance of international affairs in the lives of Americans and their government. Operations Coordinating Board On 3 September 1953, President Eisenhower, then at Denver, Colorado, issued an executive order abolishing the Psychological Strategy Board and creating the Operations Coordinating Board. According to informed press comment at the time, it was the intention of the White House to carry out the recommendation to this effect made by the President's Committee on International Information Activities. 
The new board was located immediately under the National Security Council. C.D. Jackson was a significant member of the board, but not as chairman. The chairman was Walter Bedell Smith. Besides General Smith, then Under Secretary of State, the board included Harold E. Stassen, Director of the Foreign Operations Administration, Alan W. Dulles, Director of the Central Intelligence Agency, and Roger M. Kyes, Deputy Secretary of Defense. The President also directed that Theodore C. Strybert, Director of the U.S. Information Service, make himself available. Insofar as this development represented an attempt to coordinate the framing of U.S. government policy in such a manner as to achieve maximum impact on the rest of the world, it represented a major step forward. The de-emphasis of psychological warfare or psychological strategy as operations, which could somehow or other be efficacious without a context of material support through the real-life behavior of the government issuing the propaganda, was a healthy sign indeed. Psychological warfare is at best a cumbersome and pretentious label for an important modern political and military weapon, the use of mass communication. The definition of empirical psychological warfare given in Chapter 3 and reproduced as it was originally written in 1946, makes it perfectly plain that the term acquires specificity which is made plain by the particular individualities involved undertaking the operation at any given time. Psychological warfare is not an ancient term which is so well defined by the usage of centuries that modern men would be ill-advised to redefine it or to sweep it aside. Indeed, the basic weakness of the term psychological warfare is its pretentiousness within American civilization of the 1900s. No one now knows whether the United States of the 1960s will turn out to be dynamic, forward-looking, insistent upon its own view of the world. It is difficult in the 1950s to see how the next decade or so could bring forth anything as explosive or violent in the social and political field as the atomic bomb has been in the field of fission. The United States certainly does not seem to be on the threshold of a new Islam. For better or for worse, the U.S. strengths are the strengths of sobriety, calmness, health. They are the strengths of living as opposed to the strengths of revolution. Revolution may be strong, it may even be pleasurable to some persons involved, but as Dennis W. Brogan has pointed out in his The Price of Revolution, Boston, 1952, revolution has a cost factor which must be weighed against the results expected from it. In the context of mid-twentieth century affairs, it is almost pitiable and endearing to see us Americans of this time, who are so little given to the drama of fanaticism or the salvation of the world through cruelty, attempting to dramatize our own modest and reasonable operations by giving them melodramatic and pretentious labels. 
If the communists torment us long enough, they may make us into alert brutes. This seems doubtful now. It seems probable that we will continue to be brave without being fiendish in combat, strong without becoming ferocious in peace. Varying definitions of Cywar are adopted by official agencies from time to time. The current, 1953, Joint Chiefs of Staff definition runs as follows. Psychological warfare comprises the planned use of propaganda and related informational measures designed to influence the opinions, emotions, attitudes, and behavior of enemy or other foreign groups in such a way as to support the accomplishment of national policies and aims or a military mission. This definition differs from the one given in Chapter 3 in the following important respects. It stresses the planned character of Cywar. It restricts the pertinent measures to those of an informational character. And it makes clear the operational goals. It is not clear why it is necessary to stress the element of planning of Cywar, as distinguished from other sorts of war, unless it is a homily to the Cywar operator to keep his functions in line with those of other national activities. The question of restriction to informational character is more serious. It excludes the interpretation that, in essence, psychological warfare depends upon warfare psychologically waged. Thus, substantive operations of a non-informational character adopted and executed primarily for their psychological effect could properly be called psi war finally the specification of goals is chiefly important for the control of the function and can largely be taken for granted therefore to preserve an inclusive view of the function which will comprise the range of variation in official definitions including those of one's enemies, the author stands by the definition stated in 1946. Limitations of the American Originators There are illusions about psychological warfare, illusions spread in many cases by the over-enthusiastic friends of this kind of operation. Excessive claims have been made for the efficacy of propaganda, Sometimes psychological warfare has even been offered as a substitute for war or for diplomacy. On other occasions, Americans have asked that their government do as well as this or that foreign government in the propaganda field, forgetting that the United States is a republic and a democracy and, therefore, subject to the sharp limitations which republican democratic governments possess. A republic cannot impose a purpose upon mankind. A democracy cannot announce a policy and then stick to it for years and decades. Americans are not messiahs. The limitations of American civilization, over and above our specific political institutions, are such as to make it impossible 
for Americans to lead a fanatical counter-crusade against communism, or to guarantee to the human race at large that Americans of 1955 promise that Americans of 1975 will perform this or that specific action. American propaganda is always limited, precisely because it is American. Even in an age of atomic weapons, to be American means, to some degree at least, to be free. The people of this country, or at the very least an awful lot of them, do have something to do with operating the government. A new election and a hostile House of Representatives can cut off the funds for any project, no matter what its merits may be in the eyes of the top-secret planners. The outside world knows this, even if Washington politicians and bureaucrats sometimes forget. One can even contradict the title of Archibald MacLeish's famous poem, America Was Promises, and state categorically that in the propaganda field, America certainly is not promises. The promise of a czar or a dictator is usually good for his lifetime, whereas the promise of the United States is good only within the letter of the law. A specific treaty, a definite commercial agreement, a very sharp and very narrow commitment. There is an American strength in international affairs. This strength does not lie in a propaganda capacity to promise, to threaten, or to commit the United States government to future courses of action. It lies rather in the immense probabilities of American life, in the virtual certainty that the American people will react in such and such a fashion to a new aggression that the American people will, if attacked, in all probability destroy their attackers, whoever those attackers may be, and that the American people, despite their occasional shortcomings in matters of racial tolerance, political freedom, and economic injustice, will in the long run be solidly ranged behind whatever policies seem to promise equality, prosperity, and freedom for all mankind. The limitations of the United States as a source of propaganda are sharp. There is no U.S. party line. It is virtually impossible to imagine that within our civilization as we now know it, there could be one. There might be an official U.S. line, unanimous and binding upon all federal departments, but the federal government itself is, after all, only one among the 49 separate governments operating within the continental USA. The state governments, the cities within them, and the people at large are free to contradict what the federal government may say at any given point. American strength cannot be sought in unanimity. U.S. propaganda is incapable of pulling the Sudeten rabbit out of a Munich hat. Short of an intimate and extreme danger of war itself, the U.S. government cannot threaten a foreign government very successfully. Too many U.S. citizens would immediately shout at one another, at their own government, and to the foreigners concerned, those Washington officials don't really mean it. We don't want war. We're not going to go through with it. 
If the USA moved against Spain, there are friends of Franco in Washington who would tell him to sit tight. If the USA moved too rapidly against the communist world, there are plenty of Americans, both in and out of government, who would say privately, through the press or by letters, that the Indian government or some other should assure Moscow and Peiping that the U.S. would not dare carry through. Exploitation of U.S. propaganda strength must therefore always be developed from the probable or apparent center of American opinion at that moment. It is impossible to find a U.S. policy which can be made compulsory and unanimous upon all Americans, both public and private. It is not impossible, through an adroit combination of the skills of leadership, foresight, and a keen awareness of intra-U.S. politics, to devise foreign policy programs which will command the decisive assent of the American people. War and Unanimity The less peaceful the world is, the more effective a peacetime information program can be. The attack of the communist aggressors in Korea, which involved the U.S. armed forces, pushed the U.S. public into line behind the U.S. government in a way which no degree of propaganda manipulation from Washington could have contrived. In times of danger, the American people stick together. In times of relaxation, they scatter about. One should not plan a crusade for the American people to carry out unless one is sure that someone on the outside will goad the American people with repeated stings of danger or trouble. Once war breaks out, the American people have in the past shown a very good capacity to unite in winning and finishing the war. There is no reason to suppose that the situation will be different in the future. What is perplexing and for the present insoluble is this. How can the American people, short of getting involved in war, become so purposeful, so decisive, so nearly unanimous as to take actions which will prevent a war? The situation in the early 1950s is, on the communist side, a major crusade against what the Reds regarded or pretended to regard as aggressive U.S. capitalist power. In other words, the communists of the world had a crusade against the USA. The USA had a crusade against no one. A prominent Washington official long displayed the sign in his office, I ain't mad at nobody. In a very real sense, this epitomized one of the very real moods of the American people. How do we defend ourselves against a crusade, especially if we have no desire to have part in a counter-crusade? U.S. propagandists sometimes forget that they are not speaking for a mere nation but are the representatives of something which is far bigger than any single nationality. They are the spokesmen, whether they like it or not, for a way of life which is new in the world, for a kind of freedom which, though coarse, is real. 
characteristic American strengths have been, are, and will be the strengths of patience, endurance, versatility, and curiosity. It is foolish to ask Americans to be strong in bitterness, strong in hatred, strong in a cruel or proud self-righteousness. We are not Japanese or Prussians or Russians. We are not Irish or English or French. We are mostly European and yet un-European. Our propaganda will be effective only if it springs from the simplest and strongest aspects of our life at home. Our material prosperity is beyond doubt. What is not so evident to the outside world is the frugality, the kindliness, and the humble foresight which drove so much of that prosperity into being. The Propaganda of Friendship U.S. limitations are nowhere more evident in peacetime propaganda than in the oft-repeated phrase of winning friends for America. The desire for having a friend is a deep necessity amid the crowded loneliness of U.S. urban society. The necessity to be liked leads to grotesquely exaggerated inferences as to what being liked may involve. Americans in and out of government often argue that America should make friends on the naive assumption that friends are useful to nations in time of trouble. This is, of course, not true. The Swedes were very good friends of the Norwegians. Nevertheless, the Swedes saved their Swedish skins by sitting back when the Nazis overran Norway. Did Lithuania have an enemy? Did Latvia have an enemy? Did Estonia have an enemy? These countries were the good friends of all the Western powers. These countries have disappeared. The United States was a friend of China, a friendship boastfully and sentimentally proclaimed for more than a hundred years, from the days of Daniel Webster to the finale of George C. Marshall. What use was it to the Chinese to have the United States as a friend? When they fell upon trouble, a U.S. Secretary of State denounced their government as corrupt and told the Chinese how good the United States was. Friendship does not usually lead to war or peace. War and peace depend upon survival. Any veteran will remember men whom he disliked intensely in his own wartime outfits. He never daydreamed of turning them over to the enemy just because he was personally antagonistic to them. A common danger from something, more complicatedly, a common interest in something, is a far more potent assurance of future strength and strategic action than is friendship. Friendship operates between individuals, not between the overgrown corporate fictions which are called nations. If you were a West German, and if you were absolutely positive that all Americans were lovely people, you would be wise to join the Soviet side. That way, if the Russians win, you will have appeased the enigmatic and implacable Muscovites. On the other hand, 
if the americans win and you are sure they are lovely people as well as good friends of yours they will not really mind your having joined the other side as a matter of temporary factual necessity if a man is your best friend he may jump into the river to rescue you should you fall in unfortunately he might prefer to telephone a rescue squad but if he is handcuffed to you you are reasonably sure that if you fall in he will be with you call it propaganda call it information call it international communication under any name the major point remains americans can find trustworthy future allies through commitment to common interest or common danger friendship is pleasant but not of the essence in some cases, it might be desirable for leaders or key groups in important foreign areas to realize that the United States could be a worse enemy than the Soviet Union, rather than to realize that the U.S. is a friend. If the French were sure of this, that is, that a Soviet-occupied France would get 65 hydrogen bombs dropped on it, while a U.S.-occupied France would get only three, they might prefer the Americans whether they liked them or not. Is this kind of communication consistent with American ideals? Perhaps not. Yet honesty has always been one of the American ideals, and perhaps honesty may take us in the future to a stronger and a wiser position than friendliness has taken us in the past. End of section 27